0: Welcome to the Seek Forgiveness podcast.
1: Seek Forgiveness for the launch Mental Health Kihundahir, a transformative translation guide that looks to explore and explain common mental health issues in a way that Sikh and Punjabi speaking communities can understand. If you'd like to find out more, please visit sikhforgiveness.com. If you're in the UK, you can purchase directly from the website. If you're looking to purchase internationally, please check out Amazon.
0: Thank you, Jesse, for joining the Sea Forgiveness podcast. As a mental health advocate, model, <laughs> activist towards everything mental health, tell us a bit more about your journey and how mm-hmm. mental health became a part of your life in a day-to-day conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure, so I think for me, now i've gone to the point that i'm like i can't believe mental health wasn't a part of my day-to-day just because it should be i think it should be part of everyone's day-to-day pretty traditional punjabi household like it was my parents my siblings um my dad my be my grandparents and we all lived together but unfortunately the circumstances weren't great so my father's an alcoholic um, my grandparents were both really verbally physically and emotionally abusive towards me my siblings and my mother and growing up, I just experienced a lot of trauma for a really long period of time. So, but thankfully, my mom is an incredible woman. And um, there's so much stigma about women who are experienced domestic, experiencing domestic violence, women who are going through abuse um, in Punjabi culture. People usually say, like, you know, like you don't talk about it, you don't leave you just kind of put up with it which is so not okay my sister is actually nine years younger than me so she had three kids plus literally a baby my sister was two I think when we left Um, and we had to start over my father had drained all of our bank accounts Um, we literally had nothing and we had to start over and from there I started to notice Things in myself. I think I I started noticing it a little while before, like probably when I was around seven or eight. But um, once I was out of the environment, I thought I should be doing so much better because I wasn't surrounded by all of this trauma and abuse anymore. But I at that time didn't realize that it had already had lasting effects on my mental health and on my mind. So I, you know, just did my thing. Like I was in a great new environment. My nun and my nunny came to live with us. They're the most amazing people ever. So we had this great, happy family that we were starting over with, but Um, I remember when I was 16 I went to my first um, psych class so I took psych in high school just for like an elective and they were writing down symptoms of depression and oh my god like I was like yeah like I think there's something wrong with me and she was like you have good grades your family loves you you've got an amazing group of friends like what like why her she was just like why would you be depressed and I remember sitting there being like Yeah, you're right. Like I don't have anything to be depressed about. So maybe it's just all in my head. Like maybe I'm just having a moment or whatever it was. And I kind of brushed to the side, but didn't really think about it for a couple of years. And then when I went into university, I moved away from home. So I was living three hours away. This was the first time I'd been without my family, like it is for a lot of people. And I was not coping well, um, to say the least. So I was experiencing all of these new things that no one had taught me how to do safely. No one had taught me how to affects your mental health. And it really just turned into this really long spiral for about a year. Uh, my first year, I nearly failed out of university. I failed classes. I barely passed. I didn't think I was going to get into my second year and eventually the difference came for me is I I had a really bad rock bottom. I, to the point where I was in the Mm -hmm. hospital and I was like, I can't live like this. Like, I can't, like, I won't survive this if I don't do something. And so I started to learn more. I was also taking psych in my undergrad too, um, really in a selfish pursuit just to understand myself. (laughs) Um, And then from there I actually randomly came across this presentation one day and there was these two South Asian men. Um, I don't know their names. I have no idea who they are, but it was the first time I had seen someone who kind of looked like me, who had the same skin color. The way they were talking about their stories was really similar to what I had experienced. And they were talking about how they struggled and how they got help. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know what, if they can get better, maybe I can too. And I made my therapist appointment the next day and I think that's really where my journey started and, I tell everyone that like my whole mental health advocacy comes in a selfish pursuit of I just wanted to learn about myself and doing so much once I had all that knowledge I'm like it would be such a waste to not put it out there in the world and I remember how hard it was to do all of that research like it's so hard to find the information and to find good information especially when it relates to people of color people who um, like for me I'm a second generation immigrant that my parents haven't had this knowledge and I don't have anyone else that's older that I can rely on that I can talk to and I encourage others to share theirs and we shared over 200 stories in three years um and then it really just kept on going like I just started having that conversation everywhere and we're here today
0: <laughs> the pursuit of finding out your mental health journey has enabled you to want to give back to others as well so would you say you were more self-aware when you were away from uni- at university
1: yeah i would say university was definitely the first place where i really started thinking about it um i would honestly say my like real change didn't happen until after university um so in university i had studied it in school so i understood it on paper so i knew i was like okay cool like these are what symptoms are this is what a like depression is this is what mental illness is um so the concept of it i could understand but mental health and mental illness on paper is so different than how it trans. Like we see the word self-care and we think bubble baths and all these like fun little things. Really self-care is so different. And it, it's something that's a practice. Like you have to do it every single day. And so I think my real learning came from having conversations with real humans of who other people who had experienced mental illness, who were having mental health struggles, or just people who cared. And seeing all of these different people in different walks of life and realizing that we all have mental health and that everyone struggles, sometimes we just struggle on kind of a different scale like mental health is a spectrum, sometimes we have like we all have good days we have bad days. And we move back and forth on that scale it's just all about how we take care of ourselves and knowing that sometimes we need support to do that, sometimes we need medication or a therapist or someone else to talk to and. Um, So university was definitely, I would say, like the trigger in my mind that, okay, like this is important.
0: I think that's with a lot of people as well, though, as in they have the knowledge of everything around mental health or health or any other um, industry, but it's whether someone acts on the knowledge they have. So again, it's like a lot of people know about self-care, around mental health, there's a lot of conversations happening right now, but do they act on it? you know there's mm-hmm. loads of free resources as organizations as advocates people are putting content out there um but it's hearing and doing are two different things and i think that's where the lag is is we know of mental health but we don't act on it for ourselves mm-hmm. we would definitely 100% um immediately act on it for for family members or people we yeah. love but when it comes to ourselves it's like I'll get to it. I will <laughs> actually get to it. um And you're right, self care isn't just above a bubble bath. It's one of the things, I think, one of the difficult things that people are really struggling with is switching off on social media, mm-hmm. on their phones. um Even work, I've, I've noticed a lot of people have become extremely busier whilst working at home due to the pandemic, rather than where they were factoring in other rest bites if they were working in an office
1: yeah no I've switched the way I think about it I I know we call it working from home but we're really not working from home we're just living at work yeah and so that's how I feel is that like there's no shutting off anymore it's not that I I can put my laptop away but messages will still keep popping up like I find since um pandemic everyone's like I get emails at 7 p.m or like really early in the morning, like two, three a.m. And I'm like, what are you doing working right now? Like this isn't like like take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like we have to overcompensate because we're at home and it's supposed to be traditional People haven't done that. And I think one of the things that I've realized, especially in pandemic, is that the world has changed so much. Um, and this is something I think I've put into practice just um, with how I interact with a lot of people as well. Is the way the world was when my mom was my age. Like I'm 20. Six right now, and my mom was 26. She already had me, and she was pregnant with my brother. And I can't even fathom ha- having a child right now because I'm like I can barely take care of myself. Um, but the world was different then, and so the world that she grew up in isn't the same world that we live in now. Like there's so many different things with social media, with working from home, with pandemic, like all of that type of stuff. And so we have to be gentle with ourselves and understand that what worked for people before us might not work for us now. And so even with pandemic, like, yeah, I've just been like, you know what, I, I am living at work and it's a lot. And so I try and be gentle with myself and give myself more breaks. And I know I'm more efficient when I'm home. I don't have any distractions. I'm not talking to my colleagues because there's no one here. It's just me and my <laughs> nanny sometimes. <laughs> so nanny doesn't have much to say about the work I'm doing. She's just chilling me, like cutting up fruits. So there's not much that goes on. Like I can get tasks that usually would take me like two, three hours. I get done and like 30 minutes and I'm like well it is what it is like I've done all my work why would I put in like just show up for eight hours and I think it's a great way that I hope a lot of companies are taking notice that like you can actually get more bang for your buck if you like let people work in the way that works for them.
0: I think flexible working is definitely the way forward Mm -hmm. as you mentioned as a second generation immigrant do you think there's a increased pressure on the way South Asians live their life now that has impacted their mental health as it has yours? Yeah, I think
1: for a lot of us, um, I think not just specific to South Asians, but I just think in general, when you're a child of immigrants, we like the way I like to think about the world is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Unfortunately, when they're in that mode, they don't have the luxury about thinking about their mental health because they have to make sure they can survive and that their children can survive. We're lucky that food, water, and shelter has already been taken care of for us. We get to focus on love, on acceptance, but it's also, once you get to that higher step, like it's, it's a different type of hurdle. It's a different type of stress. And it's building that understanding between generations that just because we're starting on different levels, doesn't mean that the stress is any less or any more. Like everyone has their struggles and that's just how it is. It's all relative to how we live our life. And so we owe it to them to to do something, even though we don't know what that something is. And really, at the end of the day, the something should be to be happy like that's I genuinely believe at the end of the day, our parents just want us to be happy. But what they've seen traditionally as what makes people happy is getting a good job, having a nice house, being married, having kids, because that's what it was for their generation, because they they didn't have that set up for them. But it looks different in this day and age like the world has changed the world is different now and it's simultaneously amazing but it also adds a lot of pressure
0: I think that's also with how generally humans are evolving just in every Mm -hmm. country In you know as you mentioned the greatest thing that our parents wanted for their children was to have the great job to have the house to have the Mm -hmm. kids because that's what they were told to have and as our grandparents for for example had the same aspirations for their children so they left the home countries came to a country where they could get those
1: the nice mm-hmm. house
0: and the better education And I think that was one of the things that probably enticed more people to leave say um their home countries and live in a host country to be able to provide better education to provide for mm-hmm. a wider outreach of family um and as they've evolved we have because we want an education we want a good job but with that good job comes with other commitments as well as new learnings and adapting Mm -hmm. to a western world but I think you might have experienced this as well is there's a middle ground of where we are still trying to find our feet in who we are as in where we are trying to find an identity of who and where we should be and how we fit into this world. Have you experienced that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think for me, um, I mean, identity, is part of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like that's the step up we've gotten is we get to figure out who are we, like, what do we like, what do we not like, because our parents didn't have that luxury. They just, it was kind of like pilot mode of like, I'm in a new country, I need to get it together. And they did for a lot of them. But um, the funniest thing is like, I, I am very much my mother's daughter. Me and my mom are very similar. <laughs> and sh- there's sometimes where she's like, you're so, she's like, you're so out there with your opinions and like, you all, you're like this or like this. I'm like, mom, you made me this way. Like, I'm the way I am because this is what you raised. Like, I'm very outspoken. I do what I want. And like, even with my like mental health project, when it came down to it and I thought about it, like the reason I did it is because the way my mom raised me, my mom told me that It's hilarious because her rule usually was when she was talking about roti, but like she would always say like, if you don't like it, either do something about it or don't complain about it, you know, because I didn't want to eat roti. And she was like, are you going to make your own food? I don't think so. (laughs) So stop complaining. But I applied that to other things in life. So with my mental health project, I was searching for somewhere that South Asians, especially young South Asians were having this conversation and I couldn't find it. I could find like clinical stuff, but I couldn't find just like, real people just talking candidly and it was so annoying i was like oh like i just want that space and then i it the same rule hit my head of like i can't complain about it if i don't at least try to do something about it so i made that space and i was thankful that that space led to more conversations and just sharing so amazing that like i was able to find my ad- identity through that um And mental health is a huge part of who I am. Like, I don't think people can talk about me without talking about the fact that I work in mental health. Um, And I love it. And it's amazing. But I think for a lot of young South Asians of like finding who we are and finding our identity gets really hard because we have this box that our parents want us to be in. We have this box that I would say like Western society wants us to be in. And then we have this box of like who we actually are. And sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. Um, and when it doesn't line up, it's uncomfortable and it's hard because we, you have to fight the norms. And I think especially in Punjabi culture, there's so much silence of anything that doesn't fit within the box is just like put in the darkness. Like you don't talk about it, You don't whatever it might be, sexuality, mental health, domestic violence, even like good things of like people doing jobs that are great, but it's not the doctor, lawyer, engineer. So it's definitely a, a struggle, I would say sometimes. But it's one of those things that uh, you have to be the cycle breaker. Of. It's a it's a hard burden to bear. But I think that's one of the things that I think a lot of us in this generation do have the strength for is to say, you know what? I know it's been this way for a really long time, but that doesn't work anymore. And so we're not going to do it that way.
0: Funny you mentioned cycle breaker because we've, we've been looking at a lot of work around breaking the cycle of mm-hmm. our traumas or poor mental health which has been passed down by generations Mm -hmm. um do you think a part of your mental health journey has been um influenced by your parents or something that your
1: parents may have experienced has been passed down real I think it's something that not a lot of people talk about yet but especially specific to the Punjabi community I think there's just so much trauma ingrained into our history especially like as sick Punjabi people when we have like from our grandparents or like great grandparents age, they all had to live through partition. They literally, some people were ripped from their home. Some people had to leave everything behind because the world decided they were gonna put this arbitrary line and create two new countries. And so that creates trauma, like leaving your home, having, being uprooted, that's traumatic and, there was a lot of violence during that time too. And then you forward to kind of like our grandparents and our parents' generation, like that kind of era of 1984, so much trauma. And I think it was one of the things that I didn't realize until probably last year. Um, I made a post about how intergenerational trauma affects Punjabi people when in the concept of 1984. And it was the first time that it clicked to me that uh, my mom has always been like 10 p.m. I get a text Being like where are you every single time I go out I'm 27 and like I've lived alone for seven years before like now I just moved back within pandemic but like 10 p.m without fail as soon as it's dark out I'm getting a text where are you what time are you coming home and like it used to annoy me so much I'm like why like why are you so like upset about this like calm down like I'm fine I'm an adult I'm in my car I'm with my friends like chill and then when I was making that post, I realized there was a moment in her life in 1984, when she was in like her late teens, that people would leave the house, and they wouldn't come back. And that's something she experienced, and that shapes who she is. So when I leave the house, or when my siblings leave the house, she's had that fear ingrained into her that like, this person might not come back. And I think that Took so much understanding, and it was a pivotal moment for me because I realized how it does affect me. Of, I get like it changed everything for me because I think for me I always like I had this fear by my mom always like actually coming from. I was like, oh my god, this makes sense, and it became easier for me to work on my mental health in that concept. Um, And same like on my father's side, like I mentioned, my father's an alcoholic, so like he he experienced a lot of trauma growing up too. His parents were like they were I've already mentioned this but they were abusive to me and my siblings and my mom but they were also abusive to him when he was growing up and he turned to alcohol because it's fine for a lot of Punjabi people especially guys it's like normalized that you have a stressful day you take a drink kind of thing and so that was passed down to me like I struggled with drinking in my first year because no one taught me how to do it safely and because I was already predispositioned because he was an alcoholic to kind of fall into that pattern. I did for a while. Like I would say I was definitely an alcoholic for probably a year, but because I was a girl, one, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. People like it's frowned upon. People don't understand how like as a girl you could do that cause it's not proper. Um, but literally it was the difference of like everyone around me was drinking too. It was just everyone around me was drinking to have fun and I was drinking to forget. And So all of this trauma that's happened from generation to generation until someone says, no, I'm going to stop this right here. And I'm going to work on myself. So I don't pass it on. That's when we start breaking those cycles. And like I said before, it's been unfortunate because a lot of our parents and our grandparents didn't have the luxury of thinking about their mental health because they had so much other stuff to focus on. They had to get the basics of life down. And a lot of them started over in new countries and it's really hard as someone who's younger to try and explain to someone older that like what you're going through and how you're struggling and it's not always perceived well. But I also think as the younger generation, we owe them some compassion too, that they've been through a lot of stuff and it's unfortunate that they weren't able to work on it then, but we can help them slowly to serve to see that there is kind of hope on the other side and that they don't have to carry that trauma with them forever.
0: And I think that's, You've kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like they were so focused on building the foundations for us. So it was getting us to school, having the house, having mm-hmm. the roof over our heads, which not many people had back in those generations. It was literally living off what they could. We do have the luxury of having our own houses and being able to have running water and food and you know healthcare and stuff like that. To now even have the ability to address conversations that they would have never even thought of or even been able to have the vocabulary to even mm-hmm. express what they were going through. And I think that's where a lot of generations, yeah. an older generation are experiencing now is because they've been through it and they've kind of lived through their dark days, they're kind of just like, well, yeah, we've we've, we've gone through that. We're fine.
1: It's absolutely okay. Yeah. And I think for a lot of them, they're like, yeah, like I did it. Like I I had bad times. I I'm fine now. Why can't you do it? Like, why can't you just get over it? And I think that's where that idea comes from of like, we had really bad days and we got over it. So you can get over it too. And it's one, It's not that simple. And two, like we, again, the world is different now. Like we have resources. We don't have to just forget about it. We can work through it and be so much stronger for it. And I think My mental health journey as much as it's been great for me, I think it's brought me closer to my family and like my mom and I are closer than we were ever before like we have conversations that are difficult and even my nanny my nanny is 87 now, um, but she started anxiety medication when she was around 80. Or 85, because we started having these conversations in our house. And sometimes when she's like, I get anxious. And so at 85, she started anxiety medication and now no cobrar. (laughs) So she's doing better, but it like, it took her that long because she didn't have the resources before. So some people are okay. And like, some people don't want the resources. And I think that's one other thing that we really have to realize is that we can't heal people for them. People have to want to heal themselves. People have to put in the work for themselves. And it's unfortunate when we see people who don't want to put in the work. And I felt it for a really long time too. Like I felt a lot of guilt there, but like the people around me weren't feeling better. And I would get like angry with them. I would be like, why won't you just do it? Like, just like go to therapy, just talk to someone, take the medication. Um, And I realized like everyone's different everyone's journey is different and they all have to do it at their own time and their own pace and so my mom started therapy when she was 50 Um, after a car accident that was kind of her catalyst. it was great years before and she always said no to me but once she had like a reason to and she felt like she needed it she reached out and she got that help and so I think it's um it's an interesting kind of space because we want everyone around us to be okay but we also we can't do it for them and we have to trust everyone to want to be better for themselves I think that's what it comes down to is you can't try and better yourself or someone else you have to want to be better for yourself
0: when did you decide
1: to take this step to reach out for help who did you yeah. reach out to yeah so um I would say I took this step because um of that presentation I saw so it was two South Asian males who were talking about mental health and their struggle. And it was the first time I saw myself reflected in someone's story. And that's why I've always been in love with storytelling. And I think it's our most powerful tool is because I saw them, they looked like me, they sounded like me, they experienced life like me. And I was just like, if they can get better, I can too. Like what what makes me so different that I can't get better? And I booked an appointment with a therapist. He actually sucked. <laughs> he was so bad. I remember I like made up a story because I was like testing him almost because I was like, I didn't feel safe. I didn't trust him enough to like actually talk about what was going on. So I kept on telling me that I needed to reach out to my mom for support. And I was like, yeah, you think my brown mom wants to hear about my white boyfriend issues? No, I don't think so. Um, and I was like, yeah, this is bullshit. Like I was like, therapy is not, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't working. Um, and that was my first experience with therapy. I've gone back and realized that therapy is just like finding a friend. Like it yeah. takes some time because you're not going to get along with everyone. Not everyone's going to understand you and that's okay. So it is kind of like shopping around. Like you have to talk to different people until you find one that makes you feel safe. And that was the difference. It's like, I, I started talking to other people and realized that like, oh, like not like not every therapist is a good therapist for you. It might, they might be good for someone else, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're good for you. And so finally I, I found one eventually that was good for me. And I had those conversations with her and I started learning more about myself, but for me as well, like I had experienced trauma from such a young age, it had definitely changed the way my brain functions. And so I had a lot of kind of um, neuro deficiencies and, um, my hormones were off balance and so i needed the medication so i took medication um antidepressants for a while and the other thing was i was misdiagnosed which i didn't find out until i was 25 that i was misdiagnosed like i was diagnosed with depression generalized anxiety and ptsd i would say five or six years to finally figure out that no i don't have those i actually have cptsd which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder which unfortunately isn't recognized in Canada, but it is recognized by the World Health Organization and in England and other places. So I had to do my own research to figure out, okay, what does this diagnosis mean? How can I get help? How can I feel better? And we know ourselves best. So if it doesn't feel right, like advocate for yourself and just, it sucks that it's not something like diabetes where you're like, okay, you have diabetes, you take insulin, you're fine. It's something that is ever evolving too, like the way my mind works now isn't the same as when I was 19. So every couple of years, I kind of have to change up my whole strategy on life of like, let me revamp. So I've gone through the phases of all therapy, I've done medication, I've done just self-care, support systems, and I've got, I call it my mental health toolkit, like I've got mine now. which
0: Generally, as as just human beings, we do a lot of comparison anyway. And we need <laughs> that, oh, if it works for them, then it should work for me. But again, it's again, it doesn't work for everybody. It's yeah. mental health can be so invisible. It's not like, yeah, give me a blood test and we can figure out what's going on. Um, it could be a mm-hmm. multiple multiple list of symptoms that you could be experiencing, but it still may not be the right diagnosis. And I think generally in in academia as well as just in social um, research is mental health is still being developed and acknowledged and understood and there's so much more that we need to learn um as you said complex ptsd there's it's not recognized everywhere and there's Mm -hmm. still a lot more research that needs to happen with regards to that intergenerational trauma there's not that much out there especially for um the south asian community and i think as many People out there who have shared their journeys or have found support for themselves has been via representation. And as you said, Mm -hmm. it was because you saw someone like you and who spoke like you, who looked like you, who you could relate to that made you want to seek out for the right support. And yeah, not every therapist is the right one for Mm -hmm. you. And you do have to shop around. And I think that's where some people get a little bit scared because they feel that every therapist can give you all the answers. And once you find one, then they should know everything. But that is not the case. And it is about perseverance. It is about finding who you connect with and who you trust. (laughs) And you knew you didn't feel comfortable with that first therapist. And hence the story to to see if there was an understanding between you two but there wasn't (laughs) and that's one of the things I think a lot of people struggle with is is the cultural barriers through a professional and of someone of color yeah they don't know how much trauma how much pain or um, struggles culturally they're going through
1: for sure and i think a lot of the practices like they're not made for people of color like counseling is it's not done in a way that's very western yeah it's very westernized it's not done in a way that's friendly to people of color and it's it's really hard to find someone unless they are also a person of color um and then again because of other systemic barriers there aren't as many therapists that are of color like there aren't that many black or brown or Latin therapists out there as, as there are white people, um, which is just the unfortunate case. Cause of course, like in all of these countries, like we, like people of color just don't have that for hand. We don't just don't have that privilege of not all of us get to go and pursue the higher education that if we wanted to, like, I know for myself, even like at one point I was thinking about, it, I was like, should I pursue, um, therapy as like a profession? And I was like, I don't have the luxury of, like the time or the money for it. I'm like, I need to like actually focus on my career and make money now because, like, I have a family to support. Especially in pandemic, like, yeah. my mom got into a car accident a couple years ago, and my brother was wasn't able to work as much because he works in person in sales. And so all of these things changed. And it was I was a single human taking care of a family of six with, and so I don't have that luxury of being like, oh no, like let me just like put my like making money on pause so I can pursue higher education. And that's what it's like for a lot of people. A lot of people don't have that and it's it's hard to find people in those spaces. So I'm really hoping that like, I think one of the other things is I've been working um, I think the first step was always to start having the conversation. and I think for the past couple of years, we've all been having that conversation now, and I think now it's on to the next step of actually creating and breaking those cycles and disrupting the system and finding ways to insert the people we need into the spaces we need. And that means like having more people that are of color going into these roles and being able to help because that's the only way it'll get better for everyone. So I'm I've definitely changed up the way I do my advocacy. I think it's a little more aggressive now and I'm trying more um, to create change and work with policymakers and other people who have that power and that privilege to make movement.
0: And I think that's the thing, you don't have to necessarily be in that space and Mm -hmm. study and learn and become the professional. You can be alongside professionals as a person with lived experience. You have experienced it firsthand. It was something that I watched the other day um, where this doctor had done her years. She had done 20 years of psychological um, studies and um, she had done the therapies and the the research. But it wasn't until she was actually put into a situation Mm -hmm. where she was able to put everything she had learned into practice and it didn't work for her it didn't work for her at all and it was it was same as you said it was nothing was out there that resembled what she was going through Mm -hmm. and even till that day she did the the podcast or the talk she said even now I'm still trying to understand how we could make mental health situations a better place for each individual And Mm -hmm. every situation is different. I think as humans, as I said, is we compare too much and we assume that everything's going to be okay because we all have one pill that we can take and it's just going to fix everything. (laughs) But we do need a toolbox and we need a toolbox that we can replenish every time we learn something new because those techniques don't always work for us. Yeah. And
1: we grow up and we evolve and we grow into things and grow out of things and that's okay. I think the biggest thing, lesson I've learned in mental health is the fact that we need to be gentle with ourselves. And so like thinking of yourself as your own best friend, like, would you say, like, would you tell your best friend who's crying to just like stop and suck it up? No, you would be like, I'm so sorry. Like I'm here for you. Um, and you would be gentle with them, but with ourselves, we're just so harsh because I think part of it is that we know what we can handle. We know what we're capable of. And so we always give ourselves that tough love and like, you can handle this, you're fine. You don't need to like, just get over it kind of thing but we'll drop anything for the people around us. And I think that's also just like how Punjabi culture is. It's like, we're very collect, like we're a very collectivist culture. Like we're all about community. We're all about family and chosen family whatever that kind of looks like and so sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves we deserve that same care too and the way I had to kind of reframe it for myself like for a very long time I wasn't taking care of my thing like you know what if I have to change the way I think about it that's okay and I started thinking if I want to take care of the people around me I have to be around so therefore I need to take care of myself so I can take care of the people around me and I think that's how just like the Punjabi brain works sometimes it's like we're we're just so ingrained into taking care of everyone and so if that's the way we have to reframe our thoughts of like we're doing it what we need to do for ourselves for other people um then it is what it is but yeah at the end of the day we have to put ourselves first because no one else will do that with like for you and I think if we all, like our parents included, if they started putting themselves first, if we put ourselves first, the world would be a much better place. But that's a big change that takes a lot of time.
0: <laughs> yes, for sure. And I, I I, do 100% agree with you on everything you've just said around how we always put others first. Mm-hmm. And even as our parents or my parents, for sure, if, if they put themselves first, they feel selfish. Mm-hmm. Or they feel guilty, they'll be like, "Oh no, 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 it's fine i I can do it. I can yeah. rearrange my plans to to do what you need to do, or we can change something or anything else and it's yeah, like, no, it's fine you can you can go do whatever you want to, and they're like, no, 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 it's fine, and that's where we've <laughs> learned it from is mm-hmm. even as I think even as adults now we tend to still say, Okay, sure, what do you want to do um yeah. And as you said, as, as Sikh and Punjabi individuals of today, is that's what we've learned from, from our ancestors, way beyond. Mm-hmm. It's all about providing that seva, that, that voluntary yeah. service back to community, back to Sangat, back to doing the right thing for community. Rather, there isn't much that's out there that says, okay, put yourself first in order to provide for Sangat, to provide for your yeah. community. But I think
1: even if we think about it, like the idea of Seva, of course, is like ingrained into us and like culturally, religiously, like Seva is like a huge part of Punjabi culture. But I think there's also a concept that not a lot of people think about, but it's best one. And like it's the concept that you give like whatever you're doing, 10% of it, you give back. And so it's supposed to be 90% for yourself, 10% back because it's, it's a concept that we often overlook. We just talk about the steva part of it, but that's one that is so ingrained into that because, and this is the one that's really stuck with me of like this idea of 10, giving 10% back deeper into it. Like they told us, don't give all of yourself away. Like don't just yeah. do for us. Like literally that's what it stands for. And like, that's why I find this journey so Spiritually fulfilling, we have to be okay with the fact that we may have learned something and it's no longer true. Doesn't mean that we're bad or that there's something wrong with us or that we didn't learn it properly, but the world changes. And so we have to constantly unlearn, relearn, learn something new and start over, whatever it may be. Like there's so many things in life that have happened that worked way back when being gentle with yourselves and the people around you and recognizing that. People can change, we can change. And just because we may have done something that wasn't aligned with who we are before doesn't mean that we don't have the power to do it now. I think that's one thing that a lot of people, especially in their mental health journey, think that, oh, like, I've been living like this for so long and I'm like, I'm fine. We already talked about this, but like, why change now? Why do it now? Why not? Like, there's no time like the present, like...
0: There is this whole... restriction on everything everything has to be in a box like the right age to go to university the right age to get married the right age to to go live your life the right age to have children the right age to start therapy or quit your job or start a business there is no right age i mean mm-hmm. there's so many stories that i've read where um older women and men have decided to go back to university or actually graduate from school and you think that's an achievement that they've always wanted and as you said why not why wouldn't they want to do something for themselves that doesn't make them selfish it doesn't make them being any different or make them feel out of the ordinary because they've decided to go back to school it's a great idea and I think it's more that we should be encouraged and I think it's been a bit unfair for um a lot of our community members and and the older generation where they've had to put family before themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it's difficult and it's and I think that's where we find it hard to put ourselves first because we always feel that we need to give back and as you mentioned as well is we don't always have the luxury of wanting mm-hmm. to pursue the things that we want to do for the greater good like studying therapy or or giving up your job because there's a, there's a bigger thing to be looking at, like putting your family first and being able to provide for them. But there are always other options on how you can make a change. Do you think now mm-hmm. you've embarked on a mental health journey on looking after yourself and seeking the right supports and learning about your mental health um, and doing the research behind it, that your siblings can openly talk about mental health as well?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think it's just because I embarked on that journey. I think also the world has changed. Both my siblings are younger than me, um, especially my sister. She's nine years younger. And I honestly think the generation younger than us is like, they're going to change the world. They just really look at everything differently. They are so much smarter than I think I ever could have been. Like she has been she has ingrained mental health practices into her life since she was probably about stepping it she's always been so open the way her and my mom talk to each other. is so mature and so safe and secure that they talk about everything and that's a relationship that i've never had with my mother when I was younger, because we were going through a lot like we were. Um, a lot of my childhood, we were in an abusive household. So I didn't even like, I think I would go like weeks without talking to my mom because that's the way our household was. Like we were always just hiding or my mom was always working because she had to provide for us and all this type of stuff. But it's been amazing to see how my sister kind of moves through life. And I feel really grateful that both my siblings feel really comfortable opening up to me and talking to me about all of those things. But they also know, and are aware of the other resources that are around them, that if there's something that they don't feel comfortable talking to me about, they know that they can ask me for a resource, or they know where to find that resource, and they can have those conversations, and it's been incredible to see how this younger generation takes care of themselves and puts themselves first, and I know, like, they get a lot of slack for like all the stuff they do like being on social media and whatever it is but I find that it's like the people who are like in their 20s and 30s that are way more addicted than like the teenagers because my sister like I don't even think she like follows anyone like I think she like her Instagram is empty she never posts anything she's not on TikTok she's like just like no like I'm just living my life by like reading books and like
0: she's doing her thing he's exactly the same he's going to be yeah. like 18 this year and he's like not on TikTok he doesn't like yeah. he's hardly on social media or he doesn't have much on his social media and it was funny you mentioned about how mm-hmm. open they are to mental health conversations now it was like today he was just talking about um his friend um was on medication he was just like he's so depressed all the time mm-hmm. and he just doesn't know what to do and we're always trying to support him and make sure that he's okay and i was like yeah. wow like we never had these conversations when we were at school and you are and it's so refreshing to see that they have access to these conversations so so aware of them
1: I think even for me, like I've had the same friends since I was in high school, like we met in grade nine, we went to high school together, we went to university together, we lived together, they're getting married, I'm a bridesmaid, like we've been friends for 12 plus years now, and I don't think I started having conversations about what was going on in my life and when I was struggling until like, after we graduated university, probably, like, I think I just like dealt with it on my own. And it was little things too, where like, they knew something was going on. And so they would try and ask, but they also didn't know how to ask without like, upsetting me, because I was, I'm a very reactive human. (laughs) And so sometimes like asking me things can be hard, because I you never know, like, I'm gonna get like an immediate reaction. And if I don't want to talk about it, sometimes it's a little volatile, which I've been working on and have done so much better. But it it like took a really long time for me to even accept the support now we have open conversations about everything but yeah they're the way they have their kind of chosen family the way they talk to people in their family and they're so open about all of the different things of whether it comes to medication whether it comes to sexuality whether it comes to just how people are living their life and it's incredible to see and it just gives me so much hope for the future
0: if there was anything that you would like to change within the mental health industry for people of color, what would it be?
1: Oh, I wish I could get rid of all the barriers. <laughs> it just sucks. It It sucks when you want to do better and you want to reach out for help. And then when you do, it isn't in a way that supports you. And so I think that's definitely been the hardest thing. And I think It's one of the things that I've come to realize that you kind of have to just be, you have to be a little resilient, but it's so hard because when you're already struggling, it's hard to find that strength to continue on that journey and try different things. And so I think that's why having a support system is so important is because on those days where you feel like you can't push forward, you have those people that can remind you no, it's okay. Like we got you, you're strong, you're resilient and you can, you can push forward and it doesn't have to necessarily be your family. It could be your friends. Sometimes it's strangers. I've got so many strangers on the internet that I'm friends with that fuel me and do so many great things. Like I really wish that we, we didn't have those barriers, but it's the unfortunate reality of the world we live in that those exist. And it's not something that can go away overnight because it's ingrained into the system. The system doesn't, work for people of color and it's always been that way because the system is created from a place of privilege that we don't have and so i think one being supportive of each other is super super important of when you do see people that are struggling like support them it takes a lot for people to reach out for help i think a lot of people view reaching out for help as a moment of weakness but it's really the biggest moment of strength you could ever have because it's not easy and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable is so, so hard, but it's so important and it's so necessary for people to go forward because as humans, we weren't meant to do life alone. Like there's a reason there's so many of us, like we're not meant to be alone, we're meant to be supported by each other.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Final question, Mm -hmm. what three tips or coping mechanisms would you recommend as your go-tos for managing depression and anxiety?
1: Yes, oh my gosh. So um, the I actually love this framework. There's, it's called the Seven Pillars of Self-Care and it breaks down self-care into different ways of thinking than we've traditionally thought about it. So for me, I think for someone who is struggling with mental illness, your number one tool is education. The number one thing you can do for yourself, Educate yourself on whatever your diagnosis is the symptoms and I think the other thing is recognizing patterns and like unraveling those thoughts I think that's one thing that I started to do as well is especially in pandemic I started to recognize that I was just more irritable. I was more upset all the time. And I started to look of like, okay, what are the triggers? Like when, when does this happen? And when I started to recognize the patterns, I was now able to deal with them. And I think the third thing is asking for help. Um, I'm a big believer that help is the best way to go because if we think about it the resources are available for us to use. That's literally their job. They're, they exist, all of these therapists and everyone is being paid just so they can help you. So why not take advantage of the resources? That's literally the only re, like reason for their existence. And I think honestly, like as a bonus tip, I would be letting go of the shame, like amazing 100% of the time. If you're good 100% of the time, you wouldn't be able to actually recognize that that would just be your basis. You can't recognize the highs without the lows and so be gentle with yourself and know that it's okay to struggle sometimes it's okay if it lasts a couple of days a couple of weeks a couple of months as long as you're trying to do something about it and you're coming out on the other side i think that's the most important part yes
0: it is it is and and finding a community as well which you can relate to is so mm-hmm. important for your mental health journey and i think now with your family on hand and and your own community online and offline, that all works in line with your education, as he <laughs> says, your go-to. Where can people find Jesse? <laughs> yeah,
1: um, I think Instagram is where I live and breathe when I'm not working. Um, so it's at Jesse Brar, um, and for me it's always like if I can make a difference in one person or a hundred it doesn't matter a difference is still a difference and my doors are always open to anyone who wants to talk
0: that's amazing thank you so much Jesse. it's been such an honor to speak to you and learn more about you and your journey and everything that you're doing in the mental health industry and in changing people's lives and raising the awareness around abuse family PTSD anxiety depression and as you said It's okay to not be okay. And as long as you find someone or something that helps you carry on in a happy and contentful way, then you're on the right path.